So um, last week, uh, those of you who were here will remember that I began to introduce you to how we're going to approach the Old Testament as we begin to work our way through it um, week by week uh, while I'm doing this 12-week seminar. I introduced you to something that I call the uh, interpretive triad, which I have uh, displayed up on our PowerPoint here. So we learned that we're going to be studying these biblical books um, historically. So in that, I mean, we're going to be identifying things like who the author was, um, what, what was the uh, historical situation like when that author was writing that book, um, who was he writing to. Um, one of the things that I stressed last week, in fact, was uh, being able to distinguish between the author who was writing a text and the event which he was writing the text about. So um, something I forgot to even just mention to you last week, that tells us an actually an awful lot about the kind of historical information that we should be uh, looking for um, when we go to study text historically. So last week I kind of gave an illustration. Uh, I told you all about the movie uh, Titanic that came out in 1996 and how uh, that, was a, um, that was a movie based on a historical event, but the author of that movie, the producer, had his own message that he wanted to... Uh, to, um, to pass along through writing, uh, through doing that movie. Um, whereas the historical event, it certainly had a, a message for everybody who would listen, a very important message, but that was somewhat different than the uh, author's message. So I was thinking that also kind of tells us a lot about the kind of historical information that we uh, need to be looking for as we're approaching the Old Testament to study it historically. If you wanted to study the movie Titanic, what kind of historical information would you start to look for? Would you look for information about how the boat was built? If you wanted to study the historical event, you probably would. If you wanted to study the historical event, you'd probably want to know all about how the boat was constructed. You'd probably want to know all about kind of shipping and, uh, um, and uh, sailing, and not sailing, but whatever these big boats do, it's not sailing, but whatever they do in the ocean to get people from one place to another. You'd want to know things about the captain, uh, the crew, and that kind of thing. You'd probably want to know things about the owner. This would all be uh, very important information uh, if you were trying to understand the historical event, what happened that night uh, when the Titanic sank. But how much of that information is going to be helpful for you as you begin to study that movie that came out a few uh, years ago? Okay. I mean, would you really need to know every detail about how the Titanic was put together? Well, I mean, it wouldn't hurt, but overall, probably not, okay? You wouldn't need to know a ton about how the uh, ship, how ships got from England to America and about all the different trade routes and passage routes that uh, went on between there. You wouldn't really need to know that kind of thing uh, in order to understand this movie. What kind of information would you need to under, understand that movie if you're trying to study it critically? Well, you'd want to know a lot about that author and his historical situation, right? You wouldn't want to know about early 19th century shipping um, habits and customs and that kind of thing. You'd want to know this author and his uh, current situation. So it would probably help. I, last night, uh, last week, I made a stab at just the meaning of that movie. Um, uh, I, I came away with something like, well, the Titanic was about showing the value of romantic love, even if it only lasts for a couple of hours. Well, when we're thinking about that movie, it's probably important to realize that this Hollywood producer, James Cameron, I don't know anything about James Cameron, so just take that for a grain of salt, but it's probably important to realize uh, in his uh, historical context that most marriages end in divorce. 50% of marriages end in divorce right now um, and have so for a long time, at least as far as I'm aware. Think of his context in Hollywood. Most marriages end after three months, right? And so I think uh, to be aware of his historical situation that he might be trying to speak into, maybe the idea that, hey, as long as you have romantic love, it doesn't matter how long it lasts, right? See, those, uh, when you begin to become aware of the author's historical situation, you begin to be able to form a background for uh, understanding the message that he is trying to put into his movie. So that was just another uh, kind of way that I was trying to, t um, that I thought of, of, how differentiating between a text or a movie or whatever the medium is, uh, in our case when we're studying the Bible it's a text, how making sure that we distinguish in appropriate ways between a text and event 
um, how that can kind of help guide us towards what kind of historical information that we need to gather in as we're trying to uh, understand and study a text. So, and like I think I mentioned this last week, sometimes it's very appropriate to go back and um, uh, sometimes the writer of the text, his main goal is to take this historical event and present it to his readers, and in that case, it's very appropriate to go back and get all this information. Some of the books of the Old Testament, it's very appropriate to go back and figure out information like that, but we need to leave it up to the author himself uh, in order to be able to tell us when uh, to do that and what kind of information uh, we need to gather from that. So, um, we also talked about the uh, studying a text in a literary fashion. I talked about identifying a text's genre, um, how the rules that the author um, used in order to write his text. I talked about um, getting a big picture view of his plan for writing his text. And I also talked about the importance of when you're studying any individual passage within a book, uh, understanding how to read that passage in light of the literary context around it. And the last thing we talked about was the studying a text theological. The biblical books, the books of the Old Testament and the whole Bible were meant to teach us theology, right? They were meant to teach us about the God that we love and we worship. They were meant to um, inform us about uh, who Jesus Christ is and what he came to do on the earth in order that we might worship, in order that we might be transformed in our lives, right? They're not just a, a window to a historical event that happened a long time ago that really doesn't make any difference to us now, right? The Bible makes all the difference in the world, and we want to make sure that we study it like that. So <clears throat> tonight, we are going to begin our process of working book by book through the Old Testament. So tonight, we are actually going to begin with a book called the Pentateuch, okay? Now, some of you might be a little bit confused by that. You might be thinking, well... I know the Old Testament. I don't know this Pentateuch thing he's talking about, but I know the Old Testament begins with the book of Genesis. And you're right, it, it does, but it doesn't, right? So the Pentateuch, what is the Pentateuch? Well, the Pentateuch is actually the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, originally, as far as most scholars are willing to argue, is that originally these five books weren't five separate books, but were... Uh, a single book um, written for a single for a people, and so the word Pentateuch, Pentateuch actually even uh, reflects this. The word Pentateuch means fivefold book, so it's a book that has five parts to it. Okay, um, so I, as I was uh, deciding how to best go about our class, I decided it would be best for us to think in terms of a Pentateuch rather than think in terms of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy uh, for two main reasons. Um, one, like I said, just because that's how the uh, material was originally meant to be approached. It was originally meant to be approached as one book. Um, if we're going to study uh, the Old Testament historically, literarily, and theologically, then we're going to have to do that in terms of how the original author uh, created, uh, created that book. And so that's one reason that we're going to think in terms of a, a Pentateuch for the next three weeks uh, rather than five separate books. Um, another reason is just because a lot of the, I realized uh, through preparing some material for Genesis that a lot of the themes that I wanted to address in Genesis actually appeared in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then it suddenly dawned on me, well, duh, that makes sense. They were originally one book, right? And so um, rather than just take each one of these books, uh, one, one book at a time, I've decided it'd probably be the best uh, use of our time to treat this as a whole, as the author originally intended it to be, and to go through and trying to pick out some of these theological themes. So we're going to begin tonight with a three-week study of the Pentateuch. So we're going to start with a, a historical analysis. So... Um, that was our, the first member of our interpretive triad. And so in a historical analysis, we're trying to figure out, well, who wrote the Pentateuch? We're going to look at when was the Pentateuch written and to whom was the Pentateuch written? So first thing we're going to tackle is who wrote the Pentateuch? Well, um, technically, the Pentateuch is anonymous, right? If you start reading in Genesis and go through the end of Deuteronomy, you're never going to come across a passage that says, this whole book was written by this individual. But that doesn't mean that we can't determine who actually wrote the Pentateuch. 
For starters, um, if we actually did that, if we actually started in Genesis and worked through Deuteronomy, we would come across a lot of texts that actually mention writing, right? Um, and the writing is usually divvied up between two characters. One is God and one is Moses. So those are two great characters to start with when we're asking the question, who wrote the Pentateuch? We know since it's part of inspired scripture that God was definitely uh, one of the authors of the Pentateuch. He was one of the authors of every biblical book that we're going to study. But as far as the historical author, um, we're going to take a look at some of these verses uh, that says that uh, Moses did a lot of the writing in the Pentateuch. So we're going to look at Exodus 17:14. Can you put that up on the screen there, Tim? So it's Exodus 17:14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this, and he's talking about Israel's victory over the Amalekites in this situation, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So this is an event that happened to the historical Moses, and God told Moses, I want you to write down what just happened to you uh, and put it into a book for the future generations to be able to reflect back upon. And so uh, before, in, verses, in chapter 17, 1 through 13 or so, we actually read, and the assumption, I think, is that we are reading what God instructed Moses to write down in this verse. Let's go on to uh, Exodus 24, verse 4. Uh, here we just have a very simple, and Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. So in this instance, all the words of the Lord refers to um, what's known as the Book of the Covenant. It's the very first part of God's law, uh, the stipulations and regulations that he gave to the people of Israel at the mountain of Sinai. And here in this verse, we see that God told Moses, Moses, I want you to write this down in a book uh, so that it will be preserved for future generations with the idea, the similar idea being what we just read is essentially what Rose, Moses wrote down in a book. Let's look at uh, Exodus 34, 28. Here again we see, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So here we've identified the Ten Commandments that Moses actually wrote those down on some tablets and passed them along to the people of Israel. And the Ten Commandments obviously being part of the Pentateuch. So here we have another example of Moses uh, being the one, at least in some sense, responsible for writing down what we see in the Pentateuch. Let's look at, uh, uh, let's jump to the book of Numbers, chapter 33, verse 2. This one begins, Moses wrote down their starting places stage by stage by the command of the Lord, and these are the stages according to their starting places. And then he goes on to describe what actually Moses wrote down. So if you know anything about the book of Numbers, you know that this is where the people are starting to move towards the promised land, okay? And, Moses, and God's telling Moses, Moses, I want you to write down uh, every place that you go. And the implication is, well, a lot of what we read in the uh, book of Numbers, uh, this, um, these statements telling us where the people of Israel went, the implication is, this is actually words that Moses wrote down. This is how we know this information. Let's look at Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi. So here again we see Moses writing down the law. Let's jump to uh, Deuteronomy 31, verse 24. My handwriting is a little sloppy on my page. I'm glad we have Tim up there. Just so we know, we have Tim, my new minister of music up there, uh, running the PowerPoint and setting me up on the mic, so I appreciate him. And also, the person responsible for doing these slides isn't me. I'm not talented enough to actually do PowerPoint. My, my darling wife, Autumn, was kind enough to do this for me, so make sure you all thank her uh, when you see her. I appreciate her so much. Um, but when Moses had finished writing the words of this law into a book to the very end, so here we see an indication that Whatever Moses had been writing down, this book of the law, in some sense, he had brought it to a conclusion. Uh, and we have in, uh, have in this verse that uh, he brought it to a very end. So uh, this um, idea that perhaps Moses is essentially the one that wrote the Pentateuch is actually affirmed by um, more verses in the New Testament than I could actually take you through tonight. We're going to look at two of them. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us, the teacher that is being referred to as Jesus, Moses wrote to us 
that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So here again we see that uh, the, um, somebody, this is actually, I believe it's the rich young ruler, if I'm not mistaken, he's actually attributing a portion of the Pentateuch to Moses as the one who wrote it. Let's look at John chapter 5, verse 46. For if you believe Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. Okay, so here we have an indication that Moses wrote something down, and the only option for identifying what Moses wrote in the Old Testament is the Pentateuch, okay? Uh, and here Jesus is actually making a wonderful statement. Moses actually wrote of me uh, over, it would have been a, over 1,400 years ago. Moses wrote of me in the Pentateuch. So, um, wrap your head around that. We're going to be out wrapping our heads around that quite a bit as we go through the Old Testament. So, I'm um, just give you a preview. But, uh, well, uh, so just to give a summary of the old, some of the Old Testament inf uh, information that we have and the information from the New Testament, it certainly seems like the person, uh, the figure Moses, who's the main figure of the Pentateuch that we're reading about, is the person that is actually responsible for writing most of the Pentateuch down. But there is a little bit of a catch. Let's read uh, some verses out of Deuteronomy 34. Um, I'm not going to read all of this. Well, maybe I was. Probably most of it's important. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried them in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite of Beth Peor, but no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. So this presents our running hypothesis with a little bit of a problem, right? Because this scripture in Deuteronomy is actually part of the Pentateuch. And it was recording... Um, what happened when Moses died. So we're, uh, our hypothesis that the Pentateuch actually stems from Moses is hitting a bit of a, uh, hitting a, bit of a snag at this point. You know, um, we know from uh, this point, uh, from this text, okay, his eyes were undimmed and his vigor was unabated. So he had a lot of vigor, but when he died, all that vigor became abated, didn't it? He wasn't, he wasn't able to keep on writing, right? Unless there was something weird going on, right? Unless he was came back as some kind of apparition or poltergeist or something where he uh, had two feet in heaven and one hand just on earth just finishing up the last few lines of the Pentateuch or something weird like that, right? So how are we going to think about this uh, in, in terms of who wrote the Pentateuch? Well, I think the best way that we can handle all of the information that we see in the Bible is, first of all, to affirm what the Old Testament and the Pentateuch affirms and what Jesus affirms and the other apostles affirm in the New Testament, and that is that Moses did, in fact, write the Pentateuch. We should uh, have no qualms about looking and reading the Pentateuch and realizing this stems from Moses for the most part. But I also think that we should read this text uh, that I've just referenced as an indication that at some point after Moses, Somebody did some kind of editing or modifications to what Moses originally wrote. So um, uh, we don't really know how much that later person, whoever he was, how much he actually um, changed and altered. He, I don't think he changed or altered. How, we don't know what he actually did to Moses' original work. We don't know if Moses originally wrote uh, 10 or 12 or however many separate works, and maybe somebody else came and gathered all those up and uh, filled in the bits in between it to make them all hang together or something like that. We don't know if Moses wrote essentially everything until this text uh, that's speaking of his death. We, we don't really know what kind of role this later person had, but we do uh, should, I think, conclude that he did have some kind of role. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate um, how we should think about this, and the conclusion that I came to is maybe one of the most helpful ways for us to think about this is in terms of a uh, uh, kind of the computer software lingo that's current in the day. When a, when, a, when a company writes a computer program, they usually give it a name, right? So we have Microsoft, right? And then a few years later, after it's disseminated and, uh, into all the very people, various people who are using it, and everybody's using it and says, hey, hey, this is great, but you need to fix this. 
uh, you need to fix this element, it's not working like it should. And so the manufacturer of this computer software uh, gathers up all this information in ways that could be better and uh, is thinking about them. And they also realize in the meantime their ability to make software is improved and they're able to improve on their original work. And what do they do? They don't come up with a whole brand new computer program, but they come up with this computer program 2.0, right? And so it's identifiable with uh, the original computer program, but they're trying to let you know, okay, it's 2.0 now though, right? It's, it's a little bit different than what our original thing was. I think that might be a little bit uh, of a helpful illustration, illustration of how to think about the Pentateuch. So we have an original Pentateuch written by Moses, and then we have a Pentateuch 2.0 written by somebody a little bit later, a little bit after Moses, who was able to read what Moses had done, who was um, aware of the theological emphases that Moses wanted to, uh, to proclaim in his work and wrote, um, and just wrote uh, in a way uh, to reflect that in a new work. So, <clears throat> so that's kind of how um, my going hypothesis for who was the author of the Pentateuch is Moses, and then there's uh, as the original author of something like the Pentateuch, and then we have Pentateuch 2.0. So uh, we're going to move on from there and discuss, well, when was the Pentateuch written? Well, we know Moses was obviously responsible for his uh, contributions to it before he died. Uh, we don't really know uh, this idea of Pentateuch 2.0. We don't really know uh, when that would have happened. Um, there isn't really any good indication um, about when that would have happened. One thing that we can say is um, on that, uh, go to the next uh, scripture, Tim. Uh, we, yeah. So uh, this was one of the last scriptures we read, but uh, it says, and he buried him, uh, and he, uh, God, buried him, Moses, in the valley of the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor, and no one knows the place of his burial to this day. And so this would be from the author of Pentateuch 2.0, and he's saying, well, okay, well, Moses died and was buried, and nobody knows where he was buried to this day. And so that phrase kind of makes me think, okay, some amount of time has at least passed since Moses had died and this later person had um, did what it has done whatever he has done to the Pentateuch to make it the 2.0. You wouldn't really say, well, nobody knows where Mary, Moses was buried to this day if Moses had only died like a day and a half ago, right? And so that phrase kind of makes me think, well, some time had passed, uh, probably not a whole lot, but some time had passed. So... When was the Pentateuch written? Uh, we don't know. It was after Moses had died um, at some point, probably after the Israelites had actually got into the Promised Land, I think. Because um, essentially, as soon as Moses, is, Moses died, they mourned for him for a certain period of time, and then they go into the Promised Land. To whom was the Pentateuch written? Well, uh, the answer to that question is very obvious, actually. The Pentateuch was written to the nation of Israel, right? It was uh, written to the people that Moses brought out of the land of Exodus and said, hey, I'm going to take you to the promised land that God promised to our forefathers. The, <clears throat> uh, the Pentateuch was written to these people. So what was the historical situation going on when uh, that caused the Pentateuch, um, that caused Moses and whoever uh, came after him, what was the historical situation that made them realize, hey, I need to take this stuff down and present it in a form for these people to read? Well, um, I think there were two reasons. Um, one thing that we're going to see as we uh, begin to go through the Old Testament is that we're going to see the first uh, in the Pentateuch that the people of Israel formed a covenant with God. A covenant is just an agreement uh, that they are going to follow God's laws and follow God's instructions on how to live their life. But another thing that we're going to see is that Israel wasn't very good at keeping up their covenants, right? And so I think this is actually one of the main reasons that we have the Pentateuch is that we have... Um, uh, a lot of indications that very soon after Israel went into the promised land, they didn't keep up with their end of the bargain. One place that we actually see this come, to, um, uh, that we actually see this happen is in the Pentateuch itself. So we're going to look at Deuteronomy 28, 1 through 4. And so this is God, uh, this is Moses telling the people what's going to happen if they are faithful to do uh, all of the things that God has commanded them. So he says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I commanded you today, 
the Lord your God shall set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all the blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall be your, you in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall, you, shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit uh, of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, and the increase of your herds, and your young, and your flocks. So these are the covenant blessings that are going to come upon the people of Israel if they are faithful to obeying uh, the covenant that they made with the Lord. But as I told you before, Israel actually couldn't do this. So we, we're also going to read the curses that, um, that Moses promised would come. Let's see that next uh, uh, 15 through 19, Tim. Thank you. Uh, but you will not obey the voice. Um, so this is Moses uh, continuing in this speech to the people of Israel. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall be your, you in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall, you, uh, shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your, the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and, of your, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall be you when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. So Israelites, if you disobey this covenant that you're making with God, your entire life is going to be uh, characterized by God cursing you, okay? And so I actually think this is one of the reasons that we actually have the book of the uh, the Pentateuch written to the nation of Israel is that as Israel went into the land and they their hearts began to turn away from God, somebody was responsible. Um, somebody was not wanting that to see that happen and actually went back and said, you know, I believe Moses wrote about this. And so he goes back and he gets what Moses had written and he says, guys, we need to pay attention to this. This says if we keep going in the direction that we're going, this is going to be our future. All of these curses that um, are coming up, uh, that Moses said are going to come upon us, they're going to be coming upon us. So uh, I think that's one reason that we see uh, one of the purposes of the Pentateuch is that the author is wanting to warn the nation of Israel that if you keep going in the direction that you're going, your end game is going to be God is going to curse you and exile you out of this land that he has brought us into. A second reason that I think the Pentateuch was written is just because this later author has realized that, you know, even though we have all of these laws and all these rituals and all these regulations that Moses commanded us to do, and even though we know how to follow God perfectly, I think this author is wanting to reflect back on all that scripture and reflect on the state of his people that he's looking at and think, you know what, even though we have all of this stuff, it still hasn't given us a heart to obey the Lord like you might think it would. So two reasons why was the Pentateuch written? It was written to warn the people of Israel of where they were headed, and it was written to reflect upon the fact that even though they had the law, the law in itself wasn't able to fix what was wrong in their hearts and make them want to obey God. So just to conclude our historical stuff, uh, who wrote the Pentateuch? Well, I think we can safely identify that as Moses, as long as we recognize that at some later point, somebody did write a 2.0, uh, Pentateuch 2.0, which is what we actually read when we pick up our Bibles. Um, when was the Pentateuch written? Well, it was written sometime, uh, well, it was written all along by Moses, and then at some point after his death, uh, we're not really sure how long, to whom was the Pentateuch written? It was written to the nation of Israel in order to warn them of a coming exile to turn from their wicked ways that they had gotten into. Um, and as just a reflection that the law that had been given to the people of Israel didn't have the restraining influence on the people's character and morals um, that, the, that you might have thought that getting a law would have had on you. So we're going to turn now to a literary analysis uh, the first thing we're going to talk about here when it comes to the Pentateuch is what is the genre of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch actually contains a lot of different genres, but overall, the main overall uh, genre is what we would call a historical narrative, right? It's a historical, sto uh, historical story about historical events that are being told to us in the form of a narrative. So, what kind of uh, rules? Remember last week I told you that when we're thinking of genre, we need to think in terms of like a contract between the author and between the reader. And as long as both parties fill up their end of the contract, 
uh, an effective communication of the author's message can take place. So what are the rules? What are the contractual ab obligations that the author of the Pentateuch took on himself when he decided to write a historical narrative? Well, and w one of the rules is that he committed himself to giving a historical depiction of events uh, from his perspective, right? He's not making up facts. He's not embellishing things. He's not, um, he's, not, he's not writing legends or myths or any kind of thing like that. He's actually committed himself to actually writing historical events that actually happened, right? Um, what is another rule, uh, rule that he took on upon himself? Well, one rule that you're going to always be, uh, have to take on yourself if you're writing a historical narrative is you're going to have to come to the realization that even though you're trying to present things as they happened, you can't present every single little aspect of what went on in a historical situation. It's an impossibility. You just can't do that when you're writing history. And so even though we're writing a historical event with characters, we can't identify every single character in there. We can't identify what Moses looked like, uh, whether he had blue eyes or blonde hair or was cross-eyed or was chicken winged or I don't know. You, you can't uh, include every single detail uh, when you're writing a historical narrative. When you're talking about an event that happened, you can't include every single uh, element of that event. You have to pick and choose uh, from the historical event that happened what you want to include in your narrative in order to effectively communicate your message. Um, so what are some of the um, rules uh, the uh, reader, we as readers, are obligated when we begin to read a historical narrative. Well, one of the things that we're gonna that we're obligated to do is to pick up on places when that historical author is offering explanations, explaining the meaning of the events that he's narrating to us, right? And so we see this happen a whole bunch of times in the Old Testament when we're dealing with historical narratives. The author, whoever wrote that narrative, will. He'll write his narrative, and then sometime near the middle or the conclusion of that, he'll say, now, I'm writing this to tell you this, right? And so for us, in order to hold up our end of the bargain and be responsible readers of historical narrative, we have to pick up on those clues by the author and let them guide our reading of the text. What's another rule of our, um, re our role as a readers of historical narrative? Well, I mentioned this earlier. We're responsible for figuring out and understanding what kind of historical information we need to be aware of in order to understand this historical narrative, right? Because like I said, the author, it's impossible for him to include everything within his narrative, okay? So there's going to be some things that will be helpful for us to be aware of that happened in the historical event and that author's situation uh, that will help us as we're trying to think about this uh, author's uh, narrative and trying to understand it. So some of our <coughs> contractual obligations, uh, if you will. Uh, what is the literary structure of the Pentateuch? Um, let's go on to that uh, chart, Tim. So I've heard a lot of different explanations for how the author of the Pentateuch put, it, uh, put his work together. I think the best way to think about how the Pentateuch is put together is just to follow the content that the author uh, wrote and just kind of let that guide us as far as how is he's putting it together. Uh, I've heard uh, several attempts to say that uh, the Pentateuch was written in what's known as a chiastic structure, which that simply means that the author wanted to emphasize what's in the middle, and then he wanted to emphasize uh, parallel natures of going out. So what was written first, the very first thing reflects what was the very last thing that was written. The second thing reflects the second to last thing that was written, and on and on you go, uh, you go until you reach the center. I've heard some guys try and explain, yeah, the Pentateuch's structured like that, um, I've seen several attempts to actually do that. I've never really found too many of them convincing. Um, there was a guy I mentioned last week. He's actually on the syllabus that was passed around uh, for this course. His name is John Salehammer. He's tried to argue that um, the Pentateuch is structured in this narrative, poetry, short epilogue uh, pattern. You just see these uh, patterns going out throughout the Pentateuch. You get a long block of narrative, and then you get a poetic section, just a few 
um, chapter or so of poetry, and then you just get this really short little epilogue summing everything up. I think there's a lot to be said for that, but ultimately I'm kind of a little bit unconvinced of what he had to say there. So just to give you a content outline of the Pentateuch, Genesis 1 through 11, we're dealing with, what, with what's known as the primeval history. So this is um, history that uh, occurred basically before there was writing, before we know a lot about what actually happened. A lot of this would be oral stories that were passed down to somebody like an Abraham who passed it on until it eventually made its way to somebody like Moses. So we read about this in Genesis 1 through 11. We're thinking about things like, of course, Adam and Eve. We're thinking of Noah, and we're thinking of the Tower of Babel. We have the patriarchal narratives in Genesis 12 uh, through 50. You're thinking Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. We have the exodus from Egypt where Moses goes before Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says no. And there's all these bad, awful things that happen to the uh, nation and the people of Egypt in that sense. And then eventually uh, Pharaoh relents and lets the people go. And there's the whole Red Sea thing. That's all in Exodus 1 through 15. Then we have a journey from Egypt. They've exited out of Egypt and are on their way to Sinai. And Sinai, of course, is where we read about the Ten Commandments and the law of God is given to the people of Israel. Um, but before we get to that, we have the uh, covenant, the actual making and forming of the covenant between uh, Israel and God in Exodus 20 through, 20 through 40. In Leviticus, we have a bunch of laws and regulations and ceremonies that we read about. Let's see the next slide if we can. Um, after Leviticus, we have Numbers 1 through 12. The people pit, pack up and leave from Sinai and start making their way to the Promised Land. In Numbers 13 and 14, we see that, unfortunately, the people of Israel didn't have faith to enter into the Promised Land. And they actually refused to go in there at first. They don't trust in the Lord that he is going to be faithful to give them the Promised Land. Um, and so the Lord says, okay, well, I'm not going to give it to you. And so then we see a time, a period of wilderness wanderings for the rest of the book of Numbers. Numbers 15 through 36 uh, is 40 years the people of Israel wandered around in, uh, in the desert um, uh, because they refused to go into the promised land. Beginning in the book of Deuteronomy uh, 1 through 3, we see a review of Israel's history, basically everything that has happened. Uh, even starting with uh, the person of Abraham, where God promised to give the people of Israel um, the promised land. Uh, all the way up to the current time, we see a review of a lot of the laws and the legal material in Deuteronomy 4 through 26. And we see a renewal of the covenant in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. And then finally, we see Moses' final acts and death in Deuteronomy 31 uh, through 40. So that's just a broad outline of the author's plan for putting his material together. So uh, that was our literary analysis. We identified the genre as a historical narrative and identified some rules that we should expect the author to follow and some rules that we should follow ourselves as we read this. And now we've just kind of gotten a broad idea of how the Pentateuch is putting together, uh, has been putting together. There's some other literary aspects that we'll need to keep in mind, but unfortunately they're not things that I can just kind of go through uh, like this in a broad setting. So now we're going to turn to a theological analysis of the Pentateuch. And we are going to camp out here uh, for the rest of the night and for the next two weeks at least, um, just getting ourselves acquainted with the different theological themes of the Pentateuch. And this is really the part of our studies that's really going to excite me. This is the part, uh, part of studying the Bible that I love. So um, we're actually going to look at, I forget how many I've numbered out, but it's about eight or nine different uh, theological themes uh, that I want us to study as we move through the Pentateuch. The first thing that I want us to look at is what did God intend creation to be? Now, when I'm talking about creation, you might think, well, okay, that's not really going to be a Pentateuch theme. That's just the very first couple chapters of Genesis, right? Well, uh, we definitely see creation in Genesis 1 and 2, but what I've actually discovered as I've uh, continued reading the Bible is that in the mind of the author of the Pentateuch, what God intended uh, for his original creation is actually what that author thinks uh, all of creation is heading for in the new creation, right? And so what God intended in Genesis 1 and 2 and was uh, disrupted in Genesis 3, eventually we're going to find our place back there. And so um, what God intended uh, 
creation to be actually crops up at several different points throughout the whole Pentateuch. <clears throat> um, I've tried to kind of give a stab at uh, what God intended the penance, uh, what God intended origi- uh, His creation to be. I came up with this statement: God's glorious presence filling the entire earth through His glorious image bearers. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter one and start to uh, start to try and flesh out this statement. The thing we're going to look at at first is God's glorious image bearers. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me just to the Genesis chapter one. We're going to read through this real quick. So Genesis chapter one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which, in, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons for days and years. And let them be lights in the let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed according to their kinds with every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth everything that has the breath of life i have given every green plant for food and it was so and god saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day so this is genesis 1 uh, the very first chapter of the bible 
And one of the things uh, that I'm going to try and demonstrate to you is that one of the purposes of the author of Genesis is that he is looking at all that God has done, and he is looking at the very last thing that God did on the very last day, the creation of the uh, man and the woman, and he's saying, Israelites, I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that the creation of Adam and Eve, the creation of humanity uh, in God's creation is the very crown, the very most glorious work of all that he has done. Let's look at how, we, uh, how I can come to this conclusion. Uh, if you were listening to me closely, you probably recognize that uh, Genesis 1 contains a lot of repetitions, doesn't it? It's a, it has a few phrases that it just says over and over and over and over again. Uh, it's kind of like uh, refrains in a song, right? If we're singing a song on a Sunday morning, we usually start out with a verse, and then we move uh, the verse. Uh, uh, all the verses of a song are different, right? They all, they all have different words. But then eventually after the verse and in between the verses, we come to a refrain, right? Where we come back to the very same words and we repeat the words that we've already sung before, right? And the refrain actually holds everything together, right? Well, that's kind of how Genesis 1, the very first chapter of the Bible, is written. There are these repeated uh, phrases all throughout this chapter, these repeated refrains that are occurring all throughout Genesis 1 that are trying to direct us to what the main point of this passage is. So let's look at some of these refrains. Uh, first one we need, uh, need to look at is uh, the phrase, uh, let there be. Okay, so God is making his creation, and how does he make it? He's not taking from previous material and format and fashion it. He's saying, let there be this. And the Bible says, then there was this, right? And so this phrase, let there be, we see this repeated over and over and over again in Genesis chapter 10. It's actually the phrase, let there be, actually appears 10 times in this single chapter. We see it in verse 3 where God begins and says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. We see it in verse 6 where God says, And let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. We see it in verse 9 where God says, Let the waters and let the waters under the heavens be gathered into a single place. Uh, we see it in verse 11. God said, Let the earth sprout forth vegetation and plants. Um, and so we see this repeated refrain when God is making and forming his creation all the way through the chapter up to a certain point. Let's look at verse 26. God says, let there be. No, God doesn't say let there be in this part. What does he say? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. And so all the way through Genesis chapter 1, we see this very personal uh, impersonal creation, just God saying, let there be this, and there was this, all the way for six whole days in creation until we come to the creation of man. And then all of a sudden, everything that was impersonal, all of a sudden, God gets very personal and says, let us make man in our image, right? Okay, so we see this refrain that the author has gone to a lot of... Um, a lot of struggles to establish, and all of a sudden he breaks the refrain and changes it very different, and changes it when he comes to the person of man. Let's see another refrain in the book of Genesis chapter one. Let's look at the phrase "each according to his kind." So we see this uh, repeated over and over and over again in Genesis one. It actually occurs ten times in the book in the Genesis chapter one as as well. Let's look at uh, verse twelve. The earth brought forth vegetations. Uh, plants yielding seeds according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which, is, in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. So let's look at uh, verse 21. So God created the great sea creatures and every sea creature that moves within, uh, within which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And so we see this uh, another refrain of creation repeated all these different times. Let everything be made after its own kind. So the idea is that God creates something and then each successive part of that is going to come from that original thing that God has made. It's going to come from its own kind. And we see this refrain in creation repeated uh, one time after another all the way up until a certain point. Let's read uh, chapter uh, verse 27. 
So God created man after his own kind. No, it doesn't say God created man after man's own kind. What does it say? So God created man in his own image, right? And so man isn't made after his own kind like every other thing that has been made that God has made on the earth. Man is actually not uh, created according to his own kind, but in the very image of God. And so already we've seen in two places, the author of Genesis 1 has gone through these efforts to establish these refrains in creation, and then he uses these refrains all the way through the chapter, and then he gets to the very end where he creates Adam and Eve, and then all of a sudden the refrain breaks down, right? And we see him alter it. Let's look at one more refrain, and it was good. So the phrase, it was good, occurs uh, pretty much at the end of each day of uh, creation. It occurs two times on the, in the sixth day. Uh, in total, in Genesis 1, the phrase, it, it, it was good, occurs seven times. Let's look at uh, Genesis 1, 4. And God saw the light, um, that it was good. Um, let's look at uh, Genesis uh, 1, 10. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good let's look at a few verses later in verse 12 uh, the earth brought forth vegetations plants yielding seed according to their kinds um, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed each according to this kind its kind and God saw that it was good and so we see again this author of creation is establishing this refrain, this pattern of speech that he's bringing all the way from his, the beginning of his story of creation all the way up to a certain point. So let's look at uh, verse 31, Genesis 1:31. And God saw everything, this is after God had made Adam and Eve, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was not good, but what was it? It was very good. And so again, we see this refrain going all the way through Genesis 1, all the way up into the point where God made Adam and Eve, and all of a sudden, everything that was just good has now become very good because of the crown of his creation has now been created, okay? So what was God's original plan for his creation? I gave you a phrase a, a minute ago, God's glorious presence filling the entire earth through his glorious image prayers. So I think in the very first chapter of the Bible, we begin to see the final part, the last part of that phrase begin to be established. Through his glorious image bearers. Um, I believe the author of the Genesis 1 wanted to teach us that uh, humanity, man and woman, uh, created in the image of God, uh, were, uh, were intended to be viewed as the very crowning achievement of all that God has done and the primary, the center characters in the whole narrative that's going to come after that. We are uh, running out of time. This is all this is good. This is all the material I had prepared for tonight anyway. Um, next week, we're going to continue this uh, theme that we're looking at, that we're finishing up with tonight, which is um, God, uh, what was the original intention which God created the earth. Uh, we have just a few moments. Is there any questions about anything that I've covered tonight? We don't have a whole lot of time, but if anybody does have a question, I'll be glad to take a stab at it. All right, that's fine. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.